I'm proud to be a Jew, but that's way too Jewish for me. <laughs> Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Cohen and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. In addition to our guest interview, we'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at twojewishradio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at twojewishradio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on Two Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. Two Jewish is paid for by Two Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and Two Jewish. Shalom. Perhaps it's because I've done a little traveling the last few weeks, or perhaps it's because we chanted the Torah portions of Bo and Beshalach, the last two Shabbatot, which describe the exodus from Egypt and the beginning of our people's 40 years of traveling in the wilderness of Sinai. But I've been thinking about the whole notion of us as wandering Jews. While we were a nation with a fixed home in Israel for centuries in ancient times, and for the past 75 years in the 20th and 21st centuries, too. The truth is that for much of the nearly four millennia of Jewish history, we have indeed wandered from place to place on the earth, building communities and civilizations, and then relocating them time and again. Much of this seemingly perpetual Jewish movement was the result of persecution, of course, at the hands of various empires, dictators, and religions, and some of it was simply the process of seeking freedom, freedom of religion and of human rights. Some of the wandering, the relocating, the near nomadic moving around was because of the exigencies of wars or extreme poverty, and the result of seeking safety and the opportunity to survive. And sometimes we Jews were literally expelled for political and religious reasons, or just in order to rob us of our property. Often, we Jews left oppressive places for freer ones, or impoverished societies for better situations. Because of this, Jews have lived on every continent, perhaps save Antarctica, and in nearly every nation on earth, and have created valuable Jewish communities wherever we've settled. And when conditions changed, and things got dangerous for Jews, or greater opportunities presented themselves for a better life for our children, we moved again and again. We joke about that process. Our Shabbat hiking group at my own congregation, Beit Simcha, is called the Wandering Jews. The truth is that while Jews have built enduring institutions in many places around the world, the possibility we might need to move to a new center or simply will choose to relocate for greater freedom and opportunity has always been a strong possibility. It's probably part of our DNA here in the diaspora, a telling word that means the diverse geographic spread of Jewish communities and centers all around the world. Today, Israeli young people, after fulfilling their commitments to the country and the army, are famous for traveling the world for many months, even a year or more, in their 20s. You can now find Israeli backpacker enclaves and Israeli food and businesses from Kathmandu to Chiang Mai to Cusco. You know, I'm a rather dedicated traveler myself. 
Still, every time I travel these days, every time a flight gets canceled or rescheduled or rerouted or luggage gets lost, I'm reminded of the fact that travel remains uncertain and problematic. That's far truer if it's not merely a visit to a different city or country, but instead moving your whole life to a new place or a new country, learning a new language, adapting into a new culture. It's much easier to stay where you are and keep doing what you've been doing all along where you've been doing it than to uproot and begin again. My own family of origin is evidence of this tendency of Jews to move and start over. My mother's parents, my Bubby and Zadie on my maternal side, came from a small town in eastern Poland, Krynik, a shtut. That's kind of a large shtetl near Bialystok. When they left Krynik and Poland, it was part of Tsarist Russia. My Zadie Lou eventually made his way to America before World War I, settling in New Jersey. My Bubby Dora also left Krynik, but got stuck in Holland during World War I, where she worked as a Yiddish actress. After the Great War ended, she too made her way to America and New Jersey, met my grandfather, who came from the same town in Europe, but had not known her. They married, had a restaurant catering business across from Rutgers University, raised a family there, including my mom, and then moved across the country, first to Arkansas, and then Los Angeles. My mother eventually followed them to L.A., my dad's father was from a much smaller shtetl still, a he, outside of Minsk in Belarusia, then also part of the Tsarist Russian Empire. He came to the U.S., started in New York, and then moved to New Jersey, and then on to Cincinnati to attend Hebrew Union College and become a rabbi. My grandmother's family, called Reinach in Germany and Reinhardt in America, well, they were originally from the Rhineland area of Germany, Jews who had lived there for many generations. They moved to the U.S. in the 1840s, fleeing repressive autocratic regimes in the German states of that era, settling mostly in the Midwest before my grandmother, my Bubby Irma's family, moved to Portland, Oregon after the Civil War. Part of the family was Sephardic, Spanish and Portuguese Jews expelled from the Iberian Peninsula in the 15th century, as all the Jews were then. They moved first to Italy, then on to the Rhineland area of Germany, where they married the Reinach family. Some of them served in the Union Army in the Civil War. That family's moving around didn't end in one place when they came to America. My grandmother took a train from Portland, Oregon to Cincinnati to try to become the first woman rabbi in 1910. Well, the college wasn't quite ready for that, so instead she studied with and married a rabbi. They lived in Chicago before coming back to Cincinnati, where my dad grew up. He later moved to Los Angeles. Eventually, his parents followed him in retirement to California. And today, I live in Arizona. My siblings live in New York, Northern California, and Indiana. My own children live in Texas, Oregon, and Southern California. Wandering Jews, indeed. But, of course, for the last three generations, these Jewish migrations have been mostly by choice in our mobile modern world. My own grandparents, at least three of them, left horrible regimes and regular oppression and violent anti-Semitism to find better homes and opportunities in a new land. Today, we move for jobs, relationships, personal reasons. It's different and obviously better. 
The reality is that we Jews still move regularly, and perhaps we always will. But there is a great difference between moving out of urgent and brutal necessity, as Ukrainian and Russian Jews have done in the last year, and moving by choice for opportunity or personal preference. May our people all reach a time when we move only because we want to, and not because we must. To play a sin this morning on this subject, here's a version of the Tefillat HaDerach, the prayer for travelers, by Israeli Eidota Mizrach singer Yossi Azulai. <laughs> Shalom, <laughs> Aleinu tikvah, That was Yossi Azulai's setting of Tefillat HaDerach, the Traveler's Prayer. Our guest this morning on To Jewish knows all about journeying and a lot else. She is Blair Braverman, one of the most interesting and unusual young Jewish women you will ever meet. Actually, one of the most remarkable Jews I think you'll ever meet. An outdoor adventurer, she's just the second Jewish woman to finish the Iditarod sled dog race. Nearly a thousand miles of mushing without sleeping that takes more than a week to run, which Blair Braverman has completed twice. She is strongly and proudly Jewish and the author of a fine new novel, Small Game. Meet the extraordinary Iditarod racer Blair Braverman in a few moments when we come back on Too Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. We are delighted to welcome the two Jewish, our guests this morning, Blair Braverman is an outdoor wilderness explorer, experiencer, um, a finisher of the Iditarod, uh, and I want to talk about that in a moment, author of a terrific new book, Small Game, a podcaster, and one of the most interesting Jewish people I think we've ever spoken to. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. Wow, what an intro. Well, um, 
I, I, my, my wife heard a podcast and then followed your stuff and she's now a huge fan. Um, I, I want to ask you, I've read that you are the first Jewish woman ever to complete the incredible Iditarod sled dog race in Alaska, but I've also read that you're the second Jewish woman to complete it. Can you clarify that for our listeners? Oh, that's such a good question. Cause it's a, it's a little bit of a good story. I, um, I ran my rookie I did her on in 2019 and it's a thousand mile unassisted dog sled race across the Alaskan interior. So, you know, for 13 days, my dogs and I were crossing the wilderness and we get to the finish line and it, our big goal was to get to the finish line. It was so exciting. And, um, and then a news story came out afterwards that said I was the first Jewish woman to finish the race. And, um, that was news to me. I mean, I thought, Wow, that's incredible. But, you know, it, the race has been going on for a couple decades. I don't know how you'd, how you'd know for sure, but I, I figured, you know, someone must have figured it out. Then because that article came out, they discovered the actual first Jewish woman <laughs> to run the race. It turns out I was the second. And the first Jewish woman to run the race was Susan Cantor in 1992. And, um, it was so cool because she hadn't gotten much recognition at the time. And then, you know, there were articles coming out about her, and she just seems like an incredible, incredible person. We corresponded, and she's my hero. Um, so it was sort of a sweet way that everything played out because I got we got to meet each other um, online, at least, and uh, she was able to get the recognition she didn't get at the time. And she was really a, a great sport about the fact that that article came out about me. She seemed to think it was funny. <laughs> Well, I, mean, I wasn't trying to steal her thunder, thank goodness. No, it's, it's such an amazing accomplishment. I mean, uh, some of us have read about the Iditarod for a long time and can't really imagine uh, the preparation and the work and the relationship to the dogs and completing it in those extreme conditions. Um, uh, y- you've done it again. Uh, you celebrated, was it Hanukkah along the way? Um. I didn't, you know, the Iditarods in March. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I'm not racing in December. No, no, um, that's probably a dumb question. I apologize <laughs> for that. I've, I've celebrated many a Shabbat on the dog sled trail. I'll okay. Well, there we go. We will talk much more with uh, Blair Braverman, uh, the explorer, adventurer, and author, when we come back in a moment here on Two Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson and the Catalina Foothills, celebrates a great array of services, classes, and events this winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives daily to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the Foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the Tucson metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education, academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or attend on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. Call 520-276-5675 for more information. Religious school for school-aged children or grandchildren is available. Join our fabulous Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation and teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to Beit Simcha Tucson.org. 
Tucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org to sign up. Beitzinghaz services, classes, and events are open to everyone. In person, Friday night and Saturday morning services are at 6.30 p.m. Friday night, 10 a.m. Saturday morning. Torah study preceding that at 9 a.m. All with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan leading them. Facebook page is Beit Simcha Tucson. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are live and on Zoom. You can access those through our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org. Our wonderful religious schools available in blended format, too. Some students live, some on Zoom. For more information about Beit Simcha, to come to services, our great religious school and Torah Tykes programs, Bar and Bat Mitzvah, Confirmation and High School programs, and rich array of Adult Education Academy courses, live and on Zoom, and of course, all of our services in person and on Facebook. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B E I T. S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org, or call 520-276-5675. That's 276-5675, BeitSimchaTucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the fastest-growing Jewish congregation and community in all of Arizona during its exciting beginning years. Do you know someone who personally made a major difference for the whole Jewish people? An individual who's done important work for Klal Yisrael and deserves to be highly recognized for that effort. As president of the Kohan Memorial Foundation, I'm grateful that the modest cash awards we started more than 10 years ago have grown into a substantial amount of unrestricted funds given to winners with the help of donors like many of you. The foundation, named for my grandparents, Rabbi Samuel S. Kohan and A. Irma Kohan, makes these awards for important service to Klal Yisrael, the entire Jewish people. That service can be in one of four activities, unity, education, creative arts, or rescue. Past Kohan Award recipients are remarkable people who've done outstanding work. If you know someone who qualifies for a Kohan Foundation Award, please go to kohanaward.com, C-O-H-O-N, award.com, and fill out the simple nomination form. That website is kohanaward.com. Nominate an individual or donate yourself. Do it for the whole Jewish people. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, McFetch or Eckfell, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through our website, streaming us from 2JewishRadio.com or download us from the Apple iTunes Store's podcast, Top 10 in North America, Gordon Moment Magazine, over 175,000 downloads on Podbean and on Spotify, too. Post a rating. Please review to Jewish wherever you listen to us. All those comments help. Five stars are great. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation. Known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen. 
While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. The war in Ukraine is closing in on a year, and it's been a brutal year, but a fascinating one, isn't it? Uh, obviously, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, who's become a world hero and figure, is Jewish. Um, it's still plenty of Jews in Ukraine. Many Jews and, of course, tons of other refugees have fled to neighboring countries. Um, maybe we could do a one-year perspective or retrospective, I guess, on this traumatic conflict that has catalyzed so much of the world's attention. Of course. Um so first of all, in terms of refugees, people count the refugees from Ukraine because Ukraine was brutally invaded and is still being attacked. Civilian buildings like apartment buildings, schools, hospitals are being wantonly attacked in a criminal way by Russian forces, not all of whom are really Russian military or Russian government forces. A lot of them are private you know, the, Contractors. The, the Wagner right. group or these people they're bringing in from other countries right. to fight for them, mercenaries. Um, but it doesn't matter. They're, they're still inflicting harm. But the interesting thing is people often overlook how many Russian refugees there are because of this war. Because there are Russians who are fleeing for one of many reasons. Either they've expressed opposition to the war and they're afraid for their safety or they're afraid of being drafted, or they're fed up with the Russian regime. So in many cases, the doors of Western countries are closed to them, except for this one guy who walked over the border to Norway and was welcomed with open arms because he had all kinds of military intelligence to share. Um, in, in many cases, Western countries have shut their doors. So the easiest thing for people with Russian passports to do is to go to another country in the former Soviet Union that has very different politics. So like Georgia, for example, is flooded, not so much with Ukrainian refugees, although there are some, but with Russian refugees. And there's even stories of very far-flung places in the world like Bali, where you and I have both been, where Russian refugees and Ukrainian refugees have learned to live side by side because most Russians, particularly the ones who leave, don't support this war. So they, they have no animosity whatsoever towards Ukrainians. But if we look strictly at the fighting, I mean, now, by and large, although the people who have died in recent attacks would obviously disagree if they could, 
um, the fighting is sort of at a stalemate for the dreaded Ukrainian winter, which is heavy snow, bitter cold, lots of energy shortages, um, and neither side is particularly comfortable carrying on the fight um, in these deadest months of the winter, December, January, February. Um, but everyone expects it to resume in its full horror, probably by sometime in March at the latest, if not earlier. And I mean, so, the Russians invaded in February last year. Right. So, and expected it to be over in three days. So the Ukrainians have shown a lot of heroism and still show great determination. I have a friend who used to be a, a fitness trainer at a big gym in Kiev. And he's in the army now, posting pictures of himself in uniform, at shooting practice, whatever. Uh, he's very active on social media. And recently, he got a day off, like a weekend pass. So he's at a nice park in Kiev with some quiet and relaxation in the middle of a war. Yeah. But we should talk next time about where the war is likely to go and what changes we can expect to see in the next few weeks rather than just an endless stalemate. Thanks, Tom. We will talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie new, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. It's the old country, and Rabbi Hirsch is lying on his deathbed as congregants and families sit close by, waiting to hear the dying words of their beloved Rebbe and patriarch. The rabbi's attendant, Yitzi, takes a cup of milk, goes outside, adds half a cup of schnapps to the milk, and sneaks back inside. Here, Rebbe, Yitzi says, drink this. It'll be good for you. The congregants and family members wait to hear prized last words from their sainted Rebbe. Rabbi Hirsch takes a sip of the milk, and his eyes open wide. Suddenly, he sits up. <clears throat> Rabbi clears his throat, motioning him closer. Listen to what I have to tell you. Don't sell the cow. You see, schnapps is alcohol and... Uh, never mind. That was the old Jewish joke. The week's special feature of Two Jewish just for you. You should live and be well. And now a word of Torah. This week we read the portion of Yitro, the great moment of revelation at Mount Sinai, including the climactic events of the Ten Commandments and the Theophany at Sinai, the most direct revelation of all. It's a testament to brevity and concision, just a few paragraphs that form the core of Western ethical thought. These words have become the essence of the Western religious experience ever since. But in today's world, the whole concept of revelation is complicated and challenging. Do you personally believe in revelation at all? That is, that God reveals a greater power and plan to us directly? Skeptics, which at heart includes many of us today, can easily highlight a series of improbabilities in this central tale of the epical Jewish narrative of Revelation. Are we to actually believe that at Mount Sinai, God revealed God's essence to us directly? That somehow, in a supernatural way, a group of Israelite freed slaves communicated directly with a being much greater than themselves, 
and that this only happened once more than 3,000 years ago? Are we also supposed to believe that not only did the Israelites think God connected with them, but that God spoke actual words, and our ancestors not only understood them, but committed them to memory? First, clearly, our tradition teaches that there have been moments of overwhelming connection to God, and the greatest of these is the Mahmud Har Sinai, the event of standing at Sinai, which most people think took place, if it happened, about 3,200 years ago. Our ancestors certainly believed God communicated directly with them, and that a covenant, a moral contract, was created at that spectacular moment. You know, there are many ways to view Revelation. While the text of Parshat Yitro, this week's portion in Exodus, sees the experience of Sinai as a unique one, filled with dramatic pronouncements, lightning, thunder, earthquakes, and so on, Jewish tradition has always taught that each of us stood at Sinai, including all generations of Jews not yet born. In other words, we are all participants in Revelation in our own way. Just as we must see ourselves as having come out of Egypt as freed slaves, so we all must come to understand our relationship with God directly. God's revelation, God's will revealed to us for our own lives, has to be given to each of us and accepted by each of us directly. My grandfather, Rabbi and Professor Samuel S. Kohan, had a concept of progressive revelation that each of us in every generation has the ability to conceive of God in his or her own way. Moses' generation called it the revelation at Sinai. Our generation might call it divine inspiration, even creativity, a way to channel the divine energy that flows through our world always and sometimes gifts us with the spark of greatness or genius. Is this revelation today for you? I suggest it can be. When we feel a remarkable connection to the universe that allows us to create, to write, to sing, to play music, to dance, to love freely, we experience a kind of revelation. That is when God is revealed to us in the holiness we are able to touch in our own lives. Revelation can mean simply knowing God is present through beauty, inspiration, caring. But in Yitro, there's more. For the content of Revelation here is the Ten Commandments. What are these, really? The Hebrew phrase for the Ten Commandments is aseret hadibrot, which means the Ten Statements, implying they are both more and less than commandments. These ten begin with the statement, I am the Lord your God, a oneness that bases our religious tradition on the belief in one God, of course. One God requires one code of morality, one consistent ethical system. And that is the basis for much more than a series of specific rules. It's an essential statement of the meaning and purpose of all human life. We can and should be good. Life is a moral exercise, a chance to live in a way that advances goodness and holiness in our world. It's not a small task, but it's an essential one that will bring meaning to everything we do, including perceiving God. When we come back in a moment, the remarkable Blair Braverman, quite likely the only person who completed the Iditarod Alaskan Sled Dog 1,000-mile race singing the Shabbat evening service to stay awake, 
Well, Blair will tell us what motivated her to become an outdoor adventurer and to write her terrific new book. Find out when we come back in a moment on Too Jewish. We continue with our Too Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. horrifying terror attack took place a week ago, Friday night, in a neighborhood of Jerusalem. Seven people leaving Shabbat services at a synagogue in the Neve Yaakov neighborhood were murdered by a Palestinian terrorist. They included a 14-year-old boy, a married couple where the wife was declared dead at the very hospital she worked in, a Ukrainian woman who worked as caretaker, a man who had a grandson born in California just hours after the attack. Three other people were seriously wounded. The terrorist was killed by police. He fled the scene in a car, then opened fire on officers while trying to escape on foot. This Palestinian terror attack was the worst since 2008, when Palestinian terrorists murdered eight Israeli students at the Merkaz Harav Yeshiva in Jerusalem. The very next day after this murderous rampage, still on Shabbat, a 13-year-old Palestinian boy shot and wounded an Israeli man and his son outside Jerusalem's old city walls in one of multiple violent incidents over the weekend. The shooting took place in Ir David, the city of David neighborhood. The assailant from the neighboring village of Silwan was wounded himself when the younger victim, an off-duty soldier carrying his weapon, returned fire. Israeli officials said they will seal the attacker's home, a first step in Israel's typical home demolition penalty for those responsible for deadly terror attacks. Itamar Ben-Gvir, the national security minister, said the government will seek to expand the home demolition policy to include those whose attacks don't result in fatalities. The policy change is one of several the government said it will make in response to these Palestinian terror attacks. In addition to expanding the use of the home demolition penalty, the right-wing government, led by Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, will also seek to increase the number of firearms permits available to Israelis and heighten penalties for family members of people who engage in terror, including denying them the right to live in Israel. The day before this terror attack on the synagogue, Israeli troops preempted a major Palestinian terror attack and killed 10 people, eight wanted terrorists who engaged in a firefight with Israeli authorities and who had bombs, and two civilians. That raid took place in the northern West Bank city of Jenin. Palestinian terror groups vowed to retaliate. Also last Saturday, security forces at the Kadumim settlement in the West Bank killed a Palestinian terrorist who had a gun and a Palestinian guy who attempted to fire on a restaurant in the West Bank. On Sunday, Israeli troops killed a man trying to enter the country from Syria. Meanwhile, cars and a house were burned in a Palestinian village in the West Bank. It is a suspected revenge attack by Israelis. Last week, Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, visited Israel and the Palestinian Authority. By the way, Blinken is Jewish. He highlighted the continuing U.S. support for Israel, but voiced concerns over the Netanyahu government's plan to challenge and perhaps destroy the independence of the Israeli judicial system. 
And Blinken made an effort to convince Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority of the need to implement a U.S. proposed security plan for Janine and Nablus and the whole northern West Bank, where the Palestinian Authority has essentially lost all power to Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Man, if any of you have watched the Israeli TV show Fauda, you have some idea how this is all playing out. But this time it's not a fictionalized version of real events, it's the real thing. Sad, tragic, and dangerous. In New Jersey, a man was arrested shortly after throwing a Molotov cocktail at the Reform Temple near Tamid at 3 a.m. last Sunday night. The explosive, fortunately struck, shatter-resistant doors broke and caused no serious damage, and the incident was captured on security cameras. The assailant is now being charged with a hate crime. The police caught him two days later. He faces up to 20 years in prison for the attempted firebombing of the synagogue. The attack in Bloomfield, New Jersey, has prompted universal condemnation. In the past year, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, whose executive director Jonathan Greenblatt is a past guest of Two Jewish, reported that anti-Semitic acts were up 34% in 2021. We don't yet have the figures for 2022, but they will likely show an increase as well. And 2023 is off to a bad start, too. That's the Two Jewish News of Jews Round the World. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We are delighted to welcome back to Two Jewish. Our guest this morning, Blair Braverman, is um, an extraordinary adventurer, outdoors person, and uh, author of the new book, Small Game. Um, complete the second Jewish woman, we've now established that, to complete the Iditarod dog sled race. Um... Tell us kind of how you got into this in the first place. I I heard something about um, the desire to overcome a long 
history of hearing about the Holocaust when you were young. Maybe you can clarify that for us. Well, I grew up um, in Norway, partially. My father worked in Norway, and my, my mom is of Norwegian heritage. And so I always uh, had a really strong connection to the North, even though most of my childhood was in, in Northern California. And so I got into dog sledding just because I was obsessed with dogs and obsessed with the far North, and it just seemed like the most magical thing in the world to me. Um, I My most recent book is called Small Game, and it's a novel about a survival show gone wrong. Um, and I have done some survival stuff as well. I was on the show Naked and Afraid. Um, and that I do link to hearing about the Holocaust as a kid. You know, I think it's a very Jewish thing to, um, you know, think which of my friends would hide me, that sort of thing. I remember kids having those conversations when I was a kid. And um, for me, I always like in the back of my mind, I was like, well, you know, I my family escaped the Holocaust. And if it ever happened again, I would go into the woods. And it that sounds, um, you know, very dramatic. But for for me as a kid, it was just sort of like a fact of life that you need to know how to survive. Um, and you know, now as an adventurer and an explorer, I spend a lot of time in the wilderness, and I'm still sort of interested in those survival stories. In a uh, small game, by the way, it's a compulsive read. I mean, once you start it, it's you just can't put it down. Um, I, I think about all of these reality shows, and you've been on one. Um, aren't they kind of weird? <laughs> I, I mean, they are, and they aren't. It's such a broad genre um, that to like say reality show is like to say uh, music or, or nonfiction or TV or something. or something. It's just you know. Yeah, they run the whole gamut. I can tell you that I. Um, my experience, which I've written about for Outside Magazine, um, and I was really excited because before I went on the show, they told me I'd be able to write about it. Um, and as a writer, I was thrilled because I, you know, love um, sort of capturing stories in a way that translates them for other people. Um, I had a great experience. I was in South Africa and the crew I was with had so much integrity and it was like, highly unpleasant all the time but still just <laughs> there was an honesty to the experiment that i appreciated okay. um, i know there are other people who have very different experiences highly unpleasant all the time um that's uh, a great and very polite explanation um in becoming sort of i mean it, it seems to some of us who yeah we camped a little as kids some people were boy scouts whatever what you do is many orders of magnitude beyond that isn't being like highly uncomfortable a part of it yes that's part of my job absolutely um i <laughs> it's it is just sort of the truth in 40 below or um you know sleeping on the ground and alone in the woods there's a lot of discomfort but it's actually it's not as bad as people expect it to be um because i have really good equipment unless i'm naked on a reality show. Yeah, that, that, not a lot of equipment involved there. Um, I want to talk about your relationship with your dogs. Um, uh, can you, because there's, there's a symbiotic experience, really, uh, in the Iditarod, but obviously that, that's true for you all the time, just based on some of your posts. Can you um, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I have um, 25 dogs. And my husband, he's a musher as well, Quince Mountain, and we 
run the team together. By the way, he has a he has a. You both have great names. I have to say, like Blair Braverman and Quince Mountain. I mean, you can't make you wouldn't put those in a book. You'd have to come up with something more pedestrian. I have to give my parents credit for that. I can't take any credit myself. But thank you. Yeah, we um, we run the team together, and it's called Braver Mountain Mushing because it's a combination of our last names. And um, our lives are just shaped around the dogs. I'm talking to you right now from our cabin in the North Woods. Um, dogs are taking them out in the woods pretty shortly after this phone call. The dogs um, have personalities, right? Yes, absolutely. Huge personalities. Every single such an individual. Are are any of them Jewish? I I just have to ask that question. Everyone is Jewish except for one. (laughs) How do you determine that? (laughs) It's just, you know, they have the aura. (laughs) You got two darn. You look at your dogs and you're just like, well, that one's Jewish, that one's Jewish, that one's Jewish. That one over there, Colbert, is Catholic because he's named for Stephen Colbert, who's Catholic. I so, see. But, yeah, that's right. But he he participates in the festivities anyway, <laughs> as Colbert does. Actually, his his namesake. <laughs> um, how do you determine kind of what your next project is going to be? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, a big thing we think about is what are our dogs ready for, and where are they for a particular year? You know, if we have some puppies who are integrating into the team and we have a young team. And then that year um, we're going to really focus on giving those young dogs new experiences and getting them really confident. And that's going to shape our plans for the winter. And, um, you know, when we've done really long races, it's because we have a team that's really ready for that. They're five and six years old. They're prepared. Um, they have the experience. Um, and it feels like it will be a really positive experience for them. The Iditarod is a grueling experience for both human and dog. Um, How do you feel putting both yourself and your animals through that? I decided when I went into it, very, very, very important rule, um, is that as soon as, if it ever became not a positive experience for my dogs, I would stop right there. I was not going to keep going if it wasn't a positive experience for my dogs. Now, myself, I'm an athlete. I can sort of push myself and I know what my limits are, but I'm not going to push my dogs the way that I push myself ever. That's, that's not how it works for them. They need to be just having a blast the whole time. And if they ever aren't, I, I stop right there. It's not worth it. The point is to have a good time with them. So as someone who's, you know, run a marathon and done century bike rides and stuff, which seems so pedestrian compared to what you do, I have to ask, why this motivation to push yourself so hard? Gosh, if I knew the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew. I mean, it's a dream I've had. I, I love being out with the dogs. I, I've actually discovered that two to 300 mile races are really like my sweet spot um, in terms of me having the best possible time. As opposed um, to 1,000 miles in winter yeah i love like a two to even 400 mile race feels really really good to me and although interestingly but by the way for our listeners how how long does a two to 400 mile race take so you can estimate about 24 hours per 100 miles so and you must through the day and the night so no sleep well the dogs are sleeping um but while they're sleeping i'm like 
preparing food and repairing the sled and <laughs> doing all these things that I need to do. So it's very little sleep for me. Um, and they, they actually, my goal for them is always to end a race with them, you know, barking and jumping and, you know, really frustrated Happy. that we stopped running, which is, yeah. which is usually the case. Um, but I'm exhausted and I'm ready to collapse. Hi, you know, it's, it's stunning and impressive. Um, how do you, I want you to talk a little bit about how you demonstrate your Jewish identity in the wilderness because you do so online oh, and it's, it's really fascinating. You know, there's different things I do. I actually, I'm, we often are mushing at night. I'm often out on a Friday night. I will go through an entire like Shabbat service with the talk. <laughs> I'll just sort of lead them in the prayers while they run. I do that pretty often if I'm out on a Friday night. That's very cool. I grew up in Jewish communities in Northern California that were very sort of nature oriented. I grew up, um, you know, having Torah services outside in the forest. And so for me, Jewishness and wilderness are always going to be intertwined. It's always going to feel holy to be out in wilderness. And I'm lucky enough to get to do that a lot. So everything I do when I'm out there feels Jewish to me. What you do is dangerous. Do you feel that danger when you're out there? I do and I don't. I'm actually, uh, I think of myself as really sort of a cowardly person. I'm not an adrenaline seeker. I don't like roller coasters. I don't, you know, I've never gotten a speeding ticket in my life. Um, wow. And so for me, one of the big challenges of mushing, and it's sort of interesting that I've then shaped my life around the sport, is that it uh, always terrified me when I got into it because the dogs have a tremendous amount of power and it can be very dangerous, particularly for the musher, because, um, you know, you can get dragged a long way. You can, you know... Um, the sled can sort of whip around behind the team. You can crash into trees, things like that. Um, but for me, that fear was always overshadowed by the love that I felt for the dogs and the experiences we had together. And it's been a, a consistent challenge, I would say. It's something that I never have gotten over that fear completely, but I love it so much. Um, and as my skills have grown, I trust myself to be able to handle very technical trails, storms. Um, I, I've been in a lot of emergencies out there. And I've always gotten myself and my team through. And um, and so I, I trust my skills, even though I'm still afraid. Uh, tell us about Small Game and how the book evolved. Oh, uh, yeah. So Small Game, it is, um, you know, I started working on it early in 20, 2021, right? And um, everything was still sort of locked down because of COVID. And I, I was fascinated by this idea that I've been fascinated by for a long time, which is what is the line you would have to cross to make something into real survival? And how long would it take people to recognize that they've crossed it? Which I think is also a very Jewish question. And so it's about uh, people on a reality show who think that they are there to play survival it's not fake but you know if you have a camera crew and you can like be evacuated to the hospital it's not quite real either right um and it i won't give away what happens no but it it turns from this sort of play survival um into real survival and it takes everyone out there a different amount of time to recognize it and they grapple with it in different ways and for me that was the central question um that made me want to write the book is i i 
I wanted to see how people would respond to that situation and it would be unethical to put people in that situation. So I, you know, I had to write it if I wanted to know what would happen. Yeah. I imagine TV would never do anything unethical. I'm pretty sure. Um, well, I certainly wouldn't want to be involved. No, for definitely not. But Blair Wolf, a final question. Can you give a shout out to the congregation or the community you grew up in in Northern California? I figure it's, it's worthwhile. Absolutely. Um, I grew up with um, Beit Chavarim in Northern California in Davis, uh -huh. and the tourist services I was referring to were at Camp Tawango, where I went for years and ended up working. And I'll give a shout out to my community uh, that I'm part of right now, Beit Sholem in Marquette, Michigan, which is I absolutely love. Fantastic. Um, tell us where people can go to find out more about you uh, and to get Small Game, because I highly recommend it. Read it myself in... Oh, I don't know, a day or something. It's very hard to put down. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. Well, you can find Small Game at any bookstore. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Blair Braverman or BlairBraverman.com. Um, and you can you can follow the stories of the dogs. Blair, thank you for a great visit here on Two Jewish. Definitely tell my wife Sophie about it. Um, now she'll have to listen to the show, of course, too. Uh, and uh, great pleasure, and love to talk to you again sometime. Oh, you too. Thank you so much. It's such an honor. And please uh, give your wife my love and say thank you to her for uh, bringing me on. I sure will. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest, get a final musical play out. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki Tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Two Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Sarit Yishai Levi, Israeli author of the best-selling book, The Beauty Queen of Jerusalem, a hit streaming series on Netflix. She'll be discussing her new book, The Woman Beyond the Sea. Please join us at Congregation Beit Simcha every Friday night. Shabbat services at Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning too, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush. Live in person and services available on our Facebook page. Classes are always on Zoom. Our play out this morning comes for the holiday of Tubishvat. It's tonight and tomorrow, the Jewish New Year for Trees, a lovely celebration of God's gift of the beautiful natural world and our responsibility to preserve and protect it. Here's the classic Israeli song, Eretz Eretz, the land that I love. It's my mother and father, a land of beauty and grace, no matter what happens. My friends, have a good Tubishvat, a Shavua Tov, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of peace. Eretz, 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 Eretz t'chol ein av, v'hashemesh l'kidrash v'chalav. Eretz v'noladnu, Eretz v'nichir, v'nishev b'yihyeh. Sponsored by Two Jewish Radio Programs, Tucson, Arizona.